Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. It's projected that global warming will soon go past the 1.5 degree centigrade level. That would, what would that mean for life on Earth? Mass extinction and social collapse? In his latest book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor, Andrew Boyd envisions four possible routes for the human future, two of them disastrous and two more promising. It's from New Society Publishers, and Mr. Boyd, who's a writer, humorist, and longtime activist, joins us now. Welcome. Uh, hi. Thank you, Leonard. It's, a, it's an honor to be on your show and to be on WBAI. Well, thank you. Uh, this is very important <laughs> stuff. Uh, you yeah. opened your book in September 2014 and the largest climate march in history. That was nearly nine years ago. How far have we come since addressing the crisis uh, at that time? Yeah, well, um, there's been, uh, you know, the, the climate has gotten uh, hotter. Uh, we've seen the impacts showing up in our daily lives, fires in California, extreme weather in the Gulf, uh, uh, you know, persistent droughts uh, all across, uh, you know, Central America and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So the, the we're finally sort of uh, it's entering, I think, public consciousness uh, that this is real. Um, and there's been insufficient but an extraordinary uh, uprising um, of citizenry. Uh, in a you know climate justice movements all across the country, I think the uh, best known uh, of those is the the Greta Thunberg moment of the school strikes and the global strikes that spread across the country uh, prior to the pandemic, um, and that has moved governments um, towards a greater action. Uh, you know, I think Germany is almost fifty percent now um, mm. uh, renewable energy powered at certain moments in their. Uh, in their year, depending on seasons and, and, and energy demand. Uh, after 36 years of inaction in the Senate, right? So 36 years ago, the first uh, testimony was delivered on the reality of uh, the impacts, uh, impending impacts of greenhouse gases. Uh, 36 years ago in the Senate, and it wasn't until last year that we got any significant climate legislation. And that's uh, the uh, oddly named Inflation Reduction Act, you know, $360 billion of investments in a whole uh, assortment of uh, climate legislation and policy, which will accelerate uh, America's transition uh, to uh, off of fossil fuels and to renewables with a lot of thoughts about the, 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 the communities uh, most vulnerable and the communities uh, who would normally be left behind if there wasn't uh, uh, additional funding uh, for them. So has the so, yeah, pandemic so it's mixture, had an impact? It's a mixed record. Yeah. Has the pandemic had an impact? Well, you That's say the most question. disastrous I, approaches are denial and competition. Yeah, I think it's had, you know, it's, it was an, a, a, you know, a global historical event. So it, it had impacts all across the board, as you, you know, well know and have covered in, in other episodes of your show. But um, I think it, it was a teachable moment in some important ways. Um, you know, there was a constant uh, refrain of austerity, austerity. We can't, uh, you know, government saying we can't afford to pay for the, you know, the, uh, to address the climate emergency at the scale and speed that's necessary. But the pandemic proved because of, of such the sort of visceral, immediate um, emergency that it was, that the money was there and it could be made available. And uh, to a large degree, governments could move into uh, emergency mode, both in terms of 
taking care of the, you know, the ex the impacts, the social impacts uh, on, you know, you know, rent subsidies, et cetera. And also in terms of a, of a kind of Manhattan project level uh, funding for uh, emergency vaccine uh, project. And that happened in, you know, many countries across the world and, you know, was a, an extraordinary feat of ingenuity and, 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 uh, you know, concentrated, you know, single-minded purpose, uh, kind of World War II level thing, which is exactly what we need to address the climate crisis. So it was a teachable moment in terms of social solidarity and also in terms of the ability to government to act uh, in emergency mode, which we need now. Is the most promising uh, approach powering down, which sounds to me easier said than done? Yes, much, much, much easier said than done. And, and that phrase is also uh, maybe more popularly known as a, as a degrowth, um, uh, you know, strategic approach for our economy. And there's a lot of new and interesting theorizing around that. It's, it's a very difficult thing for to do <laughs> under, you know, current uh, hyper capitalist uh, conditions, you know, and, and the basic assumptions you know, the last 200 years of, uh, of infinite growth on a finite planet, you know, runs up right against that and, and the constant grow, grow, grow to survive kind of mentality that, you know, we have at both the macro and, and somewhat at the micro business level. But um, it is, it is uh, necessary uh, for the richest economies to find a way uh, towards low growth and better no growth and even you know, a, a, a positive kind of negative growth. And, and the theorists who are, who are uh, speculating along these lines, that it can actually, like a less consumer-oriented, less um, growth-centric, less GNP-driven uh, economic uh, path is actually could deliver a higher quality of life, uh, better ecological conditions, um, and yeah, allow humans to do more of what we're you know, what we were, you know, what God put us on this earth to do. You well, know? some people uh, are wondering if it's even a good idea to bring children into this situation. Yeah, no, fair question. Uh, I was just, um, I'm, on a, I'm on the tail end of my book tour right now. I'm in uh, Southern California, in Los Angeles. And um, I, uh, at the talks I give, they're more than just, uh, you know, book readings from a, from a podium. They're, they're kind of uh, uh, what I call a stand-up tragedy. Uh, they're a show unto themselves, and there's a lot of audience participation and interaction. And at one point, I ask people uh, early in the early in the show, uh, "What is the hardest thing about climate change for you?" And people come up with various answers: the overwhelmingness of it, the the, um, the complexity, the injustice, um, uh, the fact that we know uh, that there's a lot of losses in our future and how do we grieve them now as my body seems to want to do, you know, just a host of things. And one of the things that always comes up for people is, and, and did last night was, um, well, I, I don't want to have children. You know, I don't trust in the future enough to have children. And at the Chicago reading, somebody said, I, the, the hardest thing for me is the fact that my children don't want to have children, you know? So it's, it's very much on people's minds. It's treated in the book. Um, there's a, there's a chapter called, uh, should I bring kids into such a world? Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I interview a lot of people. Naomi Klein's uh, takes on the matter show up in that chapter, but it is—it's such a such a sort of heartbreaking um, dilemma. Um, and there's a group uh, worth noting—a group called Conceivable Futures, uh, mostly women, a few men, 
who um, are uh, writing and discussing and, and um, uh, doing activism around just that question, conceivable futures worth checking out online, Googling that if, if someone uh, listening today is interested. You frame the climate crisis not as a problem, but as a predicament. What's the distinction? And, and I wonder about the point you make in the title of your book by defining a by the saying definition catastrophe is bad. How can we make a better one? Mm. Yeah, no, it's a the, the title. I mean, catastrophe people's... is always bad. You say I want a better catastrophe. Right. So we should assume that we that we're going to have a catastrophe no matter what, but we can try to make it as as least catastrophic as possible. Yeah, basically that's that's that is the um, that is the notion uh, in in the title and captured by the phrase uh, a better catastrophe. Yeah, that is um, the conclusion that I and many of the uh, you know leading climate thinkers that I that I spoke with and that I've been reading. I've come to that, you know, we we're blowing past some of the red lines that the scientists have told us uh, not to cross at, at, at great peril to our planet and people. Um, most notably, uh, you know, 1.5 degrees centigrade of, of warming, which, uh, as if you've been following the news, is is on life support right now. And it's a, people, the current estimate is that it's uh, going to come within six and a half years. That's 34.7 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, right? Is that really an impossible situation to live with? Um, Although it is the warning limit that was cited in the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah, so the 1.5 comes from the you know aggregate global surface temperature uh, increase since uh, you know the industrial era began, and that is a uh, you know commitment that uh, all the countries of the world signed on to. Uh, at, in Paris in 2015, and um, it's uh, you know the it's a uh, what the scientists have said that beyond that point, uh, you know potential feedback loops. You know we don't know what are going to happen. It's you know that uh, and justice also demands that we do all in our power to not cross that. As that's when uh, you know a number of the Pacific Islander states have have advocated for their own survival. Hmm. Um, you know that beyond that. Uh, that limit, you know, we don't know those I mean, countries because of rising lost. oceans. Yeah, because of rising oceans, correct. So, but the notion here, um, so so my read and the and the 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 reckoning that I had to do in in writing this book, and as a you know, I've been a climate activist for and a lifelong activist on various issues, and a climate activist for the last ten years or so, is that we are going to miss some of these targets, and so we're in for some variant of catastrophe you know we would like to prevent catastrophes but part of the realization the reckoning here was that uh we've we're, we've run out of time to to uh, meet some of these critical targets but that doesn't mean all hope is lost that doesn't mean we should go into total despair and doom and you know give up hope it means we have to set our sights on the next um most important target and as as uh uh, scientist uh, man would say, you know, it's not, we're not going off a cliff, right? We're on a highway and we're trying to get off hmm. at an exit. If we can't get off at the 1.5 degree exit, then we can get off at the 1.75 or 2 degree exit. It it matters. It has an, ex these, these, these fractions of a degree have extraordinary uh, consequence. Uh, they matter um, massively. So it's, um, so yeah, so the idea is that what is, 
how do we get a better catastrophe? How do we get the best catastrophe that's still available? Well, you uh, describe your, yeah. you describe yourself as a tragic optimist a can-do pessimist, <laughs> and a compassionate right. nihilist. And you're often described as a humorist. So do yeah. we need to bring a little humor to this discussion? Yeah, I think I, I'm a big believer in the power of humor, even if it has to be, and in this case, in some ways it does, a, a kind of a gallows or a, you know, a dark humor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the more... Um, uh, it, it has so many virtues, um, you know, uh, poking fun at uh, the absurdities of life, at the at the uh, you know, taking down uh, the officious. Um, but um, in a time like ours, it's also a, a existential survival strategy. You know, it's a way to better bear our burdens, a way to uh, turn our sort of victim sense of, of, of being a victim of these circumstances into into a. Uh, defiant, uh, empowered uh, attitude, um, you know, as, as one of my touchstones is, is it's also a way to communicate, um, you know, a way to invite people in to look at something they may not want to face. Uh, so as, as Oscar Wilde uh, says, and I, this is one of my personal touchstones, if you're going to tell people the truth, you'd better make them laugh or they'll want to kill you, you know? <laughs> so it's a, it's a way to leaven, uh, to leaven things, and, you know, and, and that shows up in the book in a number of ways. Um, uh, like, uh, are we going, you know, we're not, don't worry. Like one of the chapter titles, we're, we're, we're not going off a cliff, just down a sharp, slippery slope that will, mm-hmm. you know, damage the world. Um, you know, are we all, you know, it's like, are we all, we're all in this together? Not, you know, mm-hmm. or um, we've met the enemy and he is us. No, them, mm-hmm. but also us, but mostly them, you know, so there's like trying to bring in humor to, to get at the truth of our situation, even the contradictory nature of our situation and the, and the heartbreak of our situation. Aren't you the founder of protest measures like the Climate Clock and Climate Ribbon? What are they? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, throughout my um, quote-unquote career, I've tried to twin uh, like an artistic approach and artistic sensibility to social change efforts. And that's shown up in you know, many uh, of my campaigns. Uh, some, some listeners might be familiar with Billionaires for Bush for back, in the, back uh, a little while back. Um, and, uh, you know, so those creative approaches show up in these two projects that you mentioned. The Climate Ribbon uh, was a, a project that's gone on for about 10 years now. Started in New York at the People's Climate March in 2014, the largest gathering of uh, the largest climate mobilization in history. 400,000 people in the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leonard, if you were there, you know how I powerful was that was. And at the end of it, we had this ritual, this very large uh, participatory art sculpture uh, called the Climate Ribbon, where people were invited to write on a ribbon um answer a question to what do you love too much to lose and uh, as a way to you know the idea of the of this ribbon was to help people move through their climate grief to climate action and you know people answered with things like um my city miami you know or winter as a separate season or or i would always end up as i sort of had my little moment of reflection on that question uh, the kindness among strangers, mm-hmm. which, you know, to me is a sacred thing that is vulnerable when, when you know, Naomi Klein says uh, global warming just doesn't make things warmer, but makes things meaner, potentially. So bringing out the the anxiety uh, and, you know, and everyone bunkering up and the sort of kindness among strangers um, being possibly lost. One of uh, a kid, uh, eight-year-old kid we worked with in the Rockaways, and this was after Hurricane Sandy, 
uh, when we did the workshop in the Rockaways, he said, um, uh, and he almost already lost all of these things, so he didn't want to lose them again. And he said, my books, my toys, my friends, my apartment, my mom. So that's what he wrote on his mm-hmm. ribbon. You know, that's what he loved uh, too much to lose. So, and then people wrote those on the ribbons and then added them to a huge, uh, like, sacred tree uh, sculpture. And we did this in New York. We also went to Paris for the big, the big, the big uh, mobilization around the uh, around the Paris Treaty, and um, and then and then the, the the ritual would continue because you would so you'd add your your sacred thing, the thing where you're, um, you know, the hill, you know, where you're planting your flag, where the skin you have in the game, and you'd add that to the sculpture. But then you'd look at all the other ribbons and be touched, you know, by them and sort of realize the the um, what everyone else had at stake, and you would then choose one that someone else wrote, um, and you'd then remove it and add it to your wrist and sort of swear hmm. to be the guardian of the thing that that person found most sacred and most treasured, most beloved, that was under threat by the effects of climate change. My and you kid. became the guardian of that, knowing that someone else was the guardian of um, yours. And it was a very beautiful kind of movement building, intimate solidarity, kind of we're all in this together and let's get each other's backs, kind of a, a ritual that moved people from grief through their climate grief to climate action. My guest today is Andrew Boyd, whose latest book is I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor, published by New Society Publishers. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. It's streaming live at WBAI.org. What role has the Post-Carbon Institute played in this discussion? May, Leonard, may I just uh, kind of follow up on that Finish last what previous you question, saying. if I'm I may, sorry. just yes. so that people who are might be interested in the climate ribbon uh, in doing it in their churches or in their climate groups or in their communities um, can find... Uh, the whole toolkit and all that you need to know. It's a very simple ritual to do yourself at uh, theclimateribbon.org. So that's uh, a resource there for everybody. Um, and we keep getting ribbons in the mail from people who are doing it all over the world. Um, and then you mentioned, you asked about the climate clock, which is, you know, quite relevant to the conversation. So if I, if I may just uh, give the little, um, a very, it's very New York relevant uh, little summary of, of that project. And that's, um, as some of you, many of you may know, in Union Square uh, at the south and Union Square South, there's a huge uh, clock there. It's a climate clock, and it is tracking um, the timeline that we need to be on uh, and the, the, the various fronts, uh, the various pathways we need to be making progress on to address uh, the climate emergency. And it tracks the um, based on a carbon budget, the maximum amount of carbon we're allowed, we could possibly burn and stay uh, and stay under our 1.5 degree centigrade red line um, limit, and it based on that carbon budget and based on our current emission rates, uh, it calculates uh, the amount of time before that budget is uh, that we burn through that budget, and that's currently at six six and a third years, six years, and ninety some days, and counting it counts down every second. So uh, you know, visit that clock uh, to get a you know to get a real-time readout of the our critical window for taking action, or what we call our window of hope. And then it also tracks various solution pathways um, that we're, we are making progress on or need to hold the line on. You know, notably, our it has a readout of our, the, um, uh, excuse me, the 
percentage of the world's energy currently coming from renewable sources, uh, wind, solar, tidal, geothermal, et cetera. And that's uh, ticking up. That's at 13.5% and ticking up. And we need to get that number to 100% uh, as soon as we possibly can, ideally ideally before the, the, the clock uh, gets to zero. If it gets to zero, we reset it for mm-hmm. our next best goal, as we talked about, the, the, the best the most the, the first exit ramp we can possibly take off of the fossil fuel highway um so that's tracking all that in real time and then it also exists as a portable version um that uh, we first made for greta thunberg thunberg for her un speech uh at the un in 2019 and now is in the hands of activists all over the world um as a portable scientific instrument and activist communication uh, tool uh, with many other lifelines in addition to that a renewable energy lifeline, uh, indigenous land sovereignty, uh, gender parity lifeline, uh, climate, global climate justice and climate uh, reparations lifeline, um, et cetera. So uh, more to come, a fossil fuel divestment lifeline will be added in June. And uh, yeah, so it's a powerful tool. And if you want to plug into that anywhere in the world, New York, uh, you know, as well, and especially so, cause we have the big monument in Union Square, that's uh, at climateclock.world, not .org or .com, but climateclock.world. And, you know, please go there and spread the word and get involved. Um, yeah, so. And your book um, includes eight interviews with scientists, campaigners, and others who have reckoned with the worst-case scenarios. Don't their opinions and approaches vary a lot? Um, I, 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 we can go through some of them, like evolutionary biologists, Guy McPherson and activist Tim to Christopher and uh, Buddhist teacher Meg Wheatley, <laughs> indigenous botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, psychotherapist Jamie Hecht, echo philosopher Joanna Macy, activist uh, Adrian Marie Brown, and um, and Gopal Dayaneni, the co-founder of the think tank Movement Generation. Uh, do you want to talk about some of the, the ideas? Because they don't agree on much, do they? Well, yeah, no, absolutely do want to. And that was one of the more uh, you know, notable for people. I think people always mention the, the interviews, the interviews, you know, uh, they're, they're, they help me see things differently. They help uh, me change my practice as a climate activist or as, a, as just someone, as an existentially hurting human. Um, and yeah, they were. Uh, th- there was quite a variety of, uh, of perspective, but there was also some. Uh, you know, I sought them out for uh, certain reasons. You know, certain criteria. One, I wanted a diverse set of perspectives, both you know, diverse traditions, diverse professions, uh, diverse environments that they're operating in. You know, these are folks from all across the country, um, religions from upstate New York to to California. Yeah, sorry, religion but, as well. And the religious, yeah, really, no, totally religion. Uh, Tim DeChristopher uh, comes more out of an evangelical background and went to Harvard Divinity School. And there's a couple Buddhists in the mix. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Robin Wolkimmer, you know, uh, part of her, uh, you know, part of what informs her, uh, you know, worldview is a lot of the indigenous traditions from her upbringing. Um, you know, I asked her, uh, you know, when did you become a botanist? And she was like, ah, I was born a botanist, you know, mm-hmm. like that's just, um, it was an interesting part of the conversation. So, yeah, there was um, so there was a similarity in that I wanted to talk to people who weren't pretending that things were better than they were. You know, that was one of the who were clear eyed about the trouble that we were in. Uh, so that was one criteria. And then we're staying engaged uh, in 
you know, had an ethical approach, a philosophical approach, a way, you know, an activist uh, approach. Um, and so that was the, that's the uh, unity, what's what unites them all. That's why I sought them out. Um, but then, yes, you're totally right that there's a lot of diversity across across them. And that's part of the richness, I think, of the book. But uh, just to take a few examples of things I learned from each of them, you know, I, I the book began a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an investigation. It's a but it's also like an existential journey that I went on, you know, from my own reckoning with that. We're like you said, we're not in a that climate catastrophe is not a problem that we can fix, but a predicament that we must face. And so that propelled me to go out in search of perspectives, uh, you know, frames of mind, dispositions of spirit, um, uh, you know, approaches to that predicament um, and, and, and a, a sort of in search of a more robust kind of hope that would be fit for purpose for the 21st century. And so like just some examples uh, from uh, Gopal Dayaneni, who's um, one of the leading voices in the climate justice, environmental justice movement, you know, uh, lives in Oakland, California, uh, as you said, you know, uh, one of the founders of the Movement Generation Collective. But a debunker um, he, of the green scenario. Right. No, he has he lays out a whole number of different uh, scenarios, uh, you know, in the interview. And uh, like one of my takeaways from this uh, was, you know, he, the way he, he said it uh, was, um, you know, we are going to suffer. Hmm. You know, so how do we distribute that suffering most equitably? You know, so for him, the better in the better catastrophe, you know, he accepts that we're in for a very, very, very rough uh, patch in these next generations, um, is to center justice and to uh, elevate the voices and um, experiences of the most vulnerable and the most oppressed. Uh, and for him, if we can do that, if we can address each, you know, stage of the crisis as it unfolds with solutions that center justice, then we were all going to be better off. And so for him, a better catastrophe lies in, in that approach. Um, for Adrienne Marie Brown, um, uh, you know, she was uh, one of my takeaways, wisdom takeaways from, from that conversation was. Other know, than the fact that she, did, that she spells her name all in lowercase letters. All, all in lowercase. And, you know, uh, Jacques Derrida, you know, put a, 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 an inter-D symbol, a slash through the capital J and je, you know, taking the, the I, the egocentric I down. There's a lot of people who played with language in this way to sort of decolonize language, if you will. And that's, that's what she does all in lowercase. And um, I had to keep instructing the editors to sort of make sure that her name was in lowercase. Um, but it's a, it's a good move. It's a good move. It's a, it's refreshing in a way, but yeah, she's, so the, one of the most poignant and beautiful moments in all of these interviews was my conversation with, with Adrian and she, where she said, um, you know, we're in for a hard fall, you know, our civilization is going to take, a lot of hits uh, in the coming decades. We're in for a hard fall. So let's fall as if we were holding a child on our chest, mm -hmm. you know, sort of turning sort of our back to the ground. And so let's fall and brace, um, brace the fall for those that are most vulnerable, those we most love, those places and people that we most love. Uh, how do we do that? So that was her figure, you know, her metaphor, if you will, um, for how to approach this. Uh, Tim DeChristopher, uh, celebrated climate activist, um, famously uh, disrupted an oil and gas lease auction 
in Utah protecting pristine red rock country from uh, extraction um, and went to went to federal penitentiary for two years for his for his for his efforts, um, got out and went to Harvard Divinity School saying, look, if I'm going to tell people the truth about climate, I want to be able to hold them in a pastoral level of care. You know, so you just don't want to doomsplain left and right. You you this is this is um, you have to do that. You know, you have to operate uh, in at, at the heart level. You know, with a with a, with a lot of compassion. That you know, and and his he helped me understand hope um, early in the early in the journey of the book because it was one of the first interviews. He said, you know, optimism based hope. You know, hope that depends on good results is not mm-hmm. going to serve us well uh, in the coming, uh, you know, as a century rolls out. But he understood hope in a different way. He understood hope as the will to hold on to our values in the face of difficulty. And that was that was a bit of a game changer for me. And, and like, along those lines, psychotherapist yeah. Jamie Hecht believes it's possible to know the worst and still be happy. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, he was a very interesting person to talk to. He's based in L.A. He's now in Brooklyn. And, um, uh, you know, he's uh, what they he talks about um, collapse awareness. You know, what do we do with the awareness? How do how does our body hold? How does our consciousness hold the, the knowledge that, you know, our civilization's in for a fall? And he has a lot of, you know, beautiful, powerful, you know, m- mobilizing of, of, of his own wealth of wisdom from the from his. Uh, studies in psychotherapy and his studies in, in literature and Greek philosophy and poetry and, and everything um, for how to how to do that and 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 how to balance um, how to kind of hold this awareness but also maintain uh, mental health at the same time. So there's a it's a very fascinating interview with him about that. Um, uh, yeah, and. Well, let me so, take yeah, a that, let that me was, take a yeah, little I weave break all that here. wisdom into the book in various ways. Let me take a little break. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM streaming live at WBAI.org. It's you're enjoying my conversation with Andrew Boyd. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. I'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 don- or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Andrew Boyd, his book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor, is published 
by New Society Publishers. He's the co-founder and CEO, which stands in this case for Chief Existential Officer of the Climate Club. Uh, he, this is his third book. And uh, uh, let's get back to some of the things you write about. You've written that in your long history of causes, you've had your moments of hopelessness, but always powered through. But you write, the hopelessness I feel in the face of our climate circumstances are different. Yeah, um, as, as I, yeah, thank you for that. And um, as I mentioned that the book sort of precipitated by a, a crisis of hope, um, and it gets to the distinction between being, it, you know, this being a, as a friend who, who uh, that I'm staying with in LA mentioned after the talk that he saw, he realized uh, based on, the, the, he hasn't read the whole book, but he read a little bit of it and uh, saw the talk the other night. And he said, ah, I finally realized that the problem of climate change is different than the other problems I've worked on. And he's a, he's a funder and a, and a, and a community activist himself. And he said, it's, um, it's, the level of urgency is different and uh, the scope of the problem is different. You know, it's not just uh, uh, let's uh, try to abolish sweatshops or let's raise the minimum wage. These are all very important things. Or, you know, let's um, pass marriage equality. You know, again, well, these are important solar, things, but they are. Put yeah. solar panels on our roofs. Yeah. They, right, they're not going right, exactly. to solve this problem. They, they will help. But those are all small in comparison to the huge problem, isn't aren't they? Yes, yes. You know, it's it's a it's a you know arguably a problem as large as our civilization. You know, as large as our relationship with nature uh, and all the ways that expresses itself in our stories, in our economy, in our uh, the food we eat, and how we treat animals, etc. So it's in uh, it's uh, that's part of the overwhelm. Uh, I think um, besides the fact that you know this is a this is a macro problem and it feels, we feel so small in the face of it. It's a, it's a, it's as, it's as complicated as our whole global economy, arguably. So people, but there, but I think it's, the book tries to, and I think succeeds in helping us navigate a path between uh, the, you know, the, Hey, it's not so bad. Um, we have, you know, we know everything we need to do. We just need the political will. Uh, all the solutions are there. Um, we still have time, you know, that kind of bright, what they call bright siding or hopium, uh, which you know f sometimes falls on deaf ears because people feel like they're being pandered to and and um, you know don't believe it. Um, and on the other side, the sort of total despair and doom. You know, it's too late. Um, let's just give up hope. Let's just uh, you know drink ourselves till the world falls apart. Or as the fossil fuel companies would say, let's just uh, pull as much of this poison out of the earth as we can to make a buck off of it before we're told to stop. You know, kind of thing because you know it's too late or whatever. So between those poles. Um, between the false hope and the false, uh, you know, doom, uh, there is a lot that we can and must do. There's a lot of agency uh, we can have, and there's reasons for a cautious, I don't know, a tragic, what do I call it? I was going to say cautious optimism, but as we say in the book, a, a kind of a tragic optimism or a can-do pessimism. And that's the book helps us uh, identify uh, those strategies, those stories, those pathways, those attitudes that can help us um, be honest uh, about our situation, but uh, act, uh, bring our best self to bear on it. Um, and I can uh, I can share uh, 
I can share the, the solution that is one of the solutions that's happening in the USA that's uh, most exciting to me right now, just to give a, an example, if you'd like. Go ahead, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So far, you know, there's a lot happening in New York, which you could speak to about uh, as well. But um, in El Paso, this is what's caught my eye and really lifted my, you know, filled my sails with, um, you know, with, with wind um, is um, uh, in El Paso, there is a citizen led initiative to pass a climate charter, which has a number of provisions. Uh, some a little more, you know, important, but prosaic, you know, 80 percent uh, having the city powered 80 percent by renewables by 2030, uh, appointing a chief resiliency officer, et cetera. But but a, a game changing provision that's part of the charter is uh, establishing what's called water sovereignty, uh, that the citizens of El Paso, the residents of El Paso should decide should be in charge of the water underneath the city limits of El Paso. Sounds like a no-brainer. Sounds like a basic uh, municipal democracy. Uh, but currently, it's not the case. Um, but it, it, because I think it's 80 billion gallons of the water under the city limits of El Paso are being used to by the fossil fuel companies to frack uh, the Permian shale. Uh, basin, which is, I think, 60% of the reserves, known reserves in the continental U.S. Um, so the, 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 by claiming uh, sovereignty over their own water, pretty basic common sense kind of thing, um, not only would they assure their own uh, survival, water is life, as we've learned uh, from the Standing Rock Sioux over the last number of years, water is life, um, in an, you know, and they're in an arid region, increasingly under threat from drought. But so not only would they assure uh, uh, the resource needed for their their survival and continuing resiliency in the face of climate impacts, but they would then be able to deny this critical product to the worst actors, the the fossil fuel companies who are, you know, to make an extra buck uh, in their fracking, we're not only contaminating the the, the water table, but are pumping. Uh, the poison of carbon into our atmosphere, which it can, can't handle anymore if we want to stay under the limits we've been told we must stay under. So well, that agents, is a agents of big yeah, oil and gas package. have spent millions to say that we're the consumers are the That's main right. problem. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, uh, as you know, outlined, as you say, um, the fossil fuel companies have not only been like, you know, they portray themselves as, hey, we're just supplying energy, you know, to folks who are buying it, who need it. But really... Uh, Exxon knew, uh, you know, Exxon knew 50 years ago they had the best geologists in the world, and they knew the impacts of their of their of their industry. Um, so does Joe Manchin. To, say it again. So does Joe so Manchin. Does, yeah, right. Um, because this is a political only, thing as well, isn't it? It absolutely is, but it is driven by an industry that you know builds its political alliances as needed to protect its. Um, its business model and its business model is ecocide for the rest of us. Um, and, uh, you know, they spent a hundred million dollars plus on, uh, you know, what's called, an, you know, famously called uh, the merchants of doubt, you know, to cast shade on the scientific consensus that global warming is man-made um, and to, to block alternatives and to uh, you know, just make it more difficult for us to unite as a society as we did in World War II to address an existential threat. Uh, and so arguably that they and that series of actions, given 
the consequences that are expected to play out. Possibly the most criminal act in human history. Uh, and there's a lot. That's a, that's a high bar, as we know. We don't, um, we, we don't have much time left, but I did yeah. want to ask you about uh, whether those most responsible are the least impacted, while those who did the least to cause yeah. this problem, the poor communities, people of color, and those who live in the global south, are suffering the most. Yeah. No, that's a feature, uh, a, a cruel feature of the uh, climate crisis is exactly what you said. Um, and that happens, this, this, this injustice of, uh, you know, those who, you know, that happens at a country by country level, you know, the global north uh, built up their economies for 200 years with dirty coal and oil and, you know, are living uh, high on the hog, flying, uh, you know, flying for weekend vacations, et cetera, um, while the uh, countries in the global south um, who are more vulnerable, you know, to both to the droughts and famines and also to this uh, uh, ocean sea level rise, you know, in low lying areas of, of Bangladesh and elsewhere uh, are suffering uh, first and worst, uh, the, the worst impact. So that's an extraordinary level of injustice. So is there anything is, I could do? Uh, because I have no yes. time left. But is there anything I can do other than <laughs> throw up my hands and say, well, no, there's there's so much there's so much to do. Yeah, I know uh, there, there the, are all sorts of there. You, you include an appendix list of nearly 40 organizations. Uh, yeah. Should we be joining them? Yeah, it could be plugging into all sorts of things. There's a there's a lot of there's no shortage of uh, problems that could be fixed. There's no shortage of solution pathways and there's no shortage of uh, whatever skills, whatever uh, hope, whatever uh, energy, whatever good cheer you have left. Uh, there's a, a movement that's hungry for you to join in um, uh, and, 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 you know, be part of the, be part of the solution uh, rather than the problem. Um, and I just want to, you know, if we're talking about uh, if you want to look at those solutions without buying the book, and that's fine. I posted them all uh, on the website at bettercatastrophe.com. Um, you just check on the solutions section there and they're all broken down by archetype. And I thought that was an unusual and interesting way to do it. If you're if you're if you're identify as a warrior, there's some uh, groups to plug in where you can be a warrior. If you're a visionary engineer, if you're a good neighbor, if you're a healer, an artist, an elder, it's uh, the, the, the solutions page is broken down that way. So whoever you are in your core, you can um, find a way to be part of the solution. Bettercatastrophe.com. And just to note that we need to act both at the individual level and at the collective level. So do all you can on the recycling, putting solar on your roof, switching over to an EV, because uh, it's just good to be in alignment with your values and do all that you can in your own little individual life. And, and it wouldn't hurt. You need to... And it wouldn't hurt to get a copy of the book. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Okay. okay. Uh, I, this, is, this is 350 pages of really interesting stuff. Andrew Boyd, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor, published by New Society Publishers. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leonard. It was an honor and a, and, a, and a pleasure. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Kazai Glow, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all of the, the important work that they 
do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you. We are going through a rough financial time, have been since the pandemic began. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, I Want a Better Catastrophe, by Andrew Boyd. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to WBAI. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member for $10, $15, $25, what we call a BAI buddy. And if you become one uh, for $10 or more, we'll be happy to send you a BAI tote bag. Uh, but either way, it's important that you support us with your tax-free dollars. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Keep us alive and thriving. Please, we're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again next week, and we'll see you then.